Our scripture this evening will be uh, from the book of Matthew, the 27th chapter, verses 50 through 54, if you want to follow along. It's in Matthew 27. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Good evening. You know, when we increase our hope for the future, it makes a big difference in our presence today. I think that's why the Bible says there are three essentials, faith, hope, and love, and they must remain. Because despair leads people to uh, frustration and depression and insecurity and even bizarre sinful behavior, even suicide. But when people are filled with hope for tomorrow, it's reflected in their life. They have joy, they have confidence, they have power. Uh, They're just a blessing regardless of the obstacles they face. And I think that's why it's important that we have both uh, long-term hope, but also short-term hope, things to look forward to. You know, maybe just something like next summer's uh, plans, maybe a vacation, or maybe the next activity at church, or next week's game. I mean, just something that you are thinking about. We need more, though, than just temporary goals. We need eternal goals, something that keeps us focused on what's most important, especially when those temporary hopes are unfulfilling. You might remember back in 2000, there were 118 sailors that were trapped in that submerged submarine, and there was no hope of getting them out. Do you remember that? When we heard the news, we were just bothered by that. Couldn't help but feel sorry. And it's almost like nobody wanted to say anything because you didn't hear people say things like, well, it's okay, you know, they can talk and they've got food to eat and they could play cards. None of that mattered. Because they knew there was just enough oxygen to live for just a matter of hours. See, if there's no hope for the future, there's no joy in the present. Now, if you're a thinking person, what you know is we're not that much different than those men who underwent that that extreme fate. Our time is limited. It's just a matter of days, really. Maybe years. Maybe just hours. That's why Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3.19, Man's fate is like that of the animals. As one dies, so dies the other. And everything is meaningless. But Christian hope is not meaningless. It is encouraging and it's transforming. Listen to these verses. Psalm 42.11. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Isaiah 40.31. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength and they were, will soar like eagles. Paul wrote in, in Romans fifteen thirteen, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Hebrews six nineteen, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. 
C.S. Lewis would observe that biblical hope motivates Christian to action, to do something, to make a difference even now. He said this, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought the most of the next. In a sense, Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, that they've become so ineffective in this one. And then he said this, you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. But you aim at earth, and you get neither. Jesus, in his ministry, would talk about hope. Open your Bibles to Luke 17. That's going to be our text for tonight. Our hope is not just that we're going to go to heaven when we die. Our hope is that if he comes before then, that we'll be ready. And that we know that when he returns to earth, that we can be prepared to live with him forever. So as we study tonight and look at these words of Jesus, I want us to understand and grasp some Christian principles, some some things that helps us to understand Christian hope that will lift our spirits even maybe when some circumstances are not all that pleasant. So if you fill in the blank, the first is this. Christian hope keeps a balanced perspective. Christian hope keeps a balanced perspective. It's not just pie in the sky and everything's going to be lovely It's not denying the reality of some of the ugliness of life. It's a balanced perspective. Look there in Luke 17, verse 20. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Now what he's saying there is that you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see this. You don't have to have some special glasses or some special code. It doesn't require special intelligence. He goes on to say in that verse, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. And what we know in understanding the context here, that the people were looking for a political Messiah, not necessarily a spiritual one. They wanted another Moses, a second Moses, to come and deliver them from the Roman occupation. They were ready for their day of victory to come. So when they ask Jesus, when is the kingdom coming, Jesus urges them to think about the kingdom not in a political way, but in a spiritual way, not a physical kingdom. It's not going to be visible with armies and and weapons and thrones. He would say the kingdom of God is within you. Within you. Now that word within you can also be translated among you. And so when some people heard those words, they thought, oh, okay, the king's already here. So, so who is it? Or is it you, Jesus? Or, or who is this king? I think he's saying the kingdom of God begins in your heart. It is within you. It begins with a change within. You're focusing on, on, on physical power, but instead you need to be thinking about what is spiritual that transforms your life. Chuck Colson wrote in Kingdoms in Conflict, Where there is hope, it is in fact the kingdom of God has come to earth. It's a kingdom that comes not in a temporary takeover of political structures, but in a lasting takeover of the human heart by the rule of a holy God. So here's the principle we need to understand. It's really just our first point. Christian hope has to keep that balanced perspective. That balanced perspective. What happens in your heart today should receive more attention than what's going to happen uh, in this kingdom in the future. To think about how do you live it now, not just putting it off and that one day they may come, but how do you live today? And I think we need this reminder because the study of Bible prophecy is is fascinating to a number of people. And there's all kind of books being written about it, movies made about it, a lot of folks talk about it. And it's easy to get confused and maybe even wrapped up in it and you wonder, well, how much of that is true? Is it true? 
what is exactly it's going to mean, and what, what are these verses, uh, how do we explain them? You know, there's a whole series of books left behind, and movies made about that, and people really get caught up in all of that. So how are we supposed to think about that? You know, you've heard of one-issue Christians. For some people, this is their one issue. Anytime they talk about spiritual things, that's it. That's where they go, and it's all about the second coming. And they seem to have it all nailed down, and when they speak with confidence, you're thinking, are you reading from the same Bible that I read from? Because I'm just not sure. But when nothing matters except that Jesus Christ is coming soon, sometimes people just get all consumed with that, and then they kind of lose their perspective even now. I think some churches are not making plans because they just get so caught up in that. I think we're doing just the opposite here. I heard one of our elders say that when we were, you know, expanding our building. We had a debt and say, if the Lord comes back, we'll just let him pay for it. You know, there's another way of looking at things. But there are people who can get so dogmatic about their view of biblical prophecy. And they've got the chart saying exactly this is what it's going to be like and this is exactly how it's going to happen. And they, they get kind of, sort of closed-minded about it. But here's what we know. Every generation of Christians in history has believed that Christ is coming back in their lifetime. It happens. You just, you just go back and, and look. And that can be good. To have that type of perspective. That he could be coming back at any time. They keep us alert. But it is possible. It is possible it may be another hundred years. It may be another thousand years. I personally don't hope he waits that long, but it's possible. But back here in Luke 17, I think what he's saying is keep your perspective and keep it balanced. The kingdom of God is here now. It's taking place in your hearts. And you're much better at changing your heart and putting your energy focused on what you can do instead of just being so lost and focusing all the time on the second coming. Well, here's the second principle. Christian hope discerns the truth. It knows between what's true and what's false. And this is a true biblically-based hope. It's not deceived by false predictions. Look there, Luke 17, verse 22 and 23. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. But you will not see it, Jesus said. I'm going to be taken away from you for a period. Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them, he says. And what we know is that throughout history, there have been one person after another to make such a claim. Jesus is coming back, and here's the day, and here's the time, and these are the circumstances. So much so, they just get caught up in it. For example, in the book of 2 Thessalonians, it was written by Paul to, to help people to understand in that early church that, that it may not be just that way. So he said this as he wrote to the church there, Second Thessalonians 2, look at verses 1 and 2. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. So that was happening early on in the church. And what we know is it continued back in the early 1900s. There was a guy named Charles Russell. He predicted that Jesus was going to come back in 1914, and it didn't happen. But you knew that already, didn't you? It didn't happen, but people believed him. Russell explained that Jesus instead took a new position in heaven. He moved to a new throne, and most people didn't know it, and that was the beginning of the Jehovah's Witness movement. 
So that whole cult, that whole thinking was based on bad theology. Not that long ago, as, as, early as, uh, as recently as 1988, there's a guy named Edgar Wissnant. He printed a booklet that was called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. Kind of a convenient title, isn't it? And many naive followers got caught up in his claims. 1997, Marshall Applewhite, remember? Maybe not by that name. How about Heaven's Gate? Does that ring a bell? Yeah, he convinced people the Lord was coming back. Come out here and then see and persuaded 39 members of that cult to take their lives. You know, throughout history, there have been people who would say, Jesus is coming. And they'd give the day or their time or they would talk about it like it was just imminent, like just, just any moment. And even now, there are people who exploit that. Come and see the statue who weeps. Come look into this window and you'll see the image of Jesus. Come and do this. Come and do that. Drink this poison and go join the Lord with me. But Jesus is saying, don't fall for all that. His words, don't go running after that. Keep that balanced perspective. Let your wisdom, your hope, discern what's true and false. Look at verse 24. The Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. And we know what he's saying there. When lightning happens, you see it. Because it's in the darkness of night. And it's such a phenomenon. No matter where you are, if it's close to you, you see it. And you hear the thunder as well. See, the first time Jesus came, in a way, he kind of sneaked here, born of a manger, as a baby. But not so in the second come. It's going to be visibly in power, and everybody's going to know it. Revelation 1-7 says, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Well, here's the third principle I want you to see. Christian hope remains constant, regardless of the world's condition, regardless of what's going on. Because what's happening doesn't discourage us. It doesn't take away our spiritual hope. Look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. When you go back and you read the account in Genesis 6, the Bible says God purged the world of the flood because of the the wickedness that was everywhere. Genesis chapter 2, verse 6 says, One of the characteristics of Noah's day was the breakdown of the family. The sons of God were marrying the daughters of men. Those who were following God were, were intermarrying with those who didn't believe, Satan's people. And the family was being undermined. Genesis 6, 5, another characteristic is that evil thoughts were dominating man's thinking. Every inclination, it says there, every inclination of thought of his heart was evil all the time. And then in Genesis 6.11, it says the earth was filled with violence. I read through some of those verses and I thought, sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? I mean, it's eerily similar. Sanctity of marriage is discarded. Our thought life is more and more wicked. Pornography is so easily to get on our computers, whether you want it or not. Suggestive television shows. Violence is threatening our schools. It's everywhere in our entertainment. It seems to be no escape. The Bible says, God told Noah, I'm going to put an end to all these people, all the earth. They're just so wicked. And what we know is that Noah had been warning them for years. Warning them for years. But they scoffed at Noah. They kept on eating and drinking and carrying on. As as it says here, even having weddings. Right into the day of the flood when they got on the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took it all away. But Noah and his family had hope. 
No one in his family kept that hope. They knew that when the flood came, they would escape through the ark. They knew that God would take care of them. So Jesus is saying, prior to his coming, the days are going to be a lot like that. And even like Lot, look in verse 28. In the same ways in the days of Lot, people were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. Do you hear what he's saying there? The economy is booming. Things are going well. Things are looking up. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them. It would be just like this on the, Son of day, on the day the Son of Man is revealed. What we know, so we go back and we read what the Bible says about the days of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. They were characterized by greed, by selfishness, by pride. The Bible records in several different places about this time in history. Ezekiel 16, 49 says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. The next verse says, They were haughty, and they did that which was detestable in God's sight. I read one source. It observed that 49,000 people had applied for a reality TV program. 49,000 people had applied. And the article went on to say there was no way to even look at every application. But at the same time, for the period of a year, an entire year, only 10,000 people applied for the Peace Corps. And the article made the observation, some people talk about the need for helping the poor, but they want the government to do it. They want other people to do it. But when it comes to reaching in their own pocket, giving our own lives, they're not willing because of that selfishness that greed like the days of Sodom. See, the days of Lot were characterized by sexual, uh, sexual immorality too. Maybe that's what we think of most, but that's not the only thing. But it's definitely there, the perversion. Jude 1.7 says, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And what we think about the people in this day, the days of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, they practiced sodomy and homosexuality. It became so rampant, it became accepted, it became the norm. And again, as I was studying through some of this, again, I was thinking maybe like you are at this moment, it sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? It's more and more accepted, more and more the norm. But God says in Leviticus 18.22, don't lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. It's the very thing that the scripture here says that Lot's, the time of Lot, they were dealing with. And it was so rampant, do you remember, that when the two angels came to visit Lot, he said, you better go, because Lot knew what that meant. They were warned he was going to destroy the city. Look at Genesis 19, verse 4 and 5. All the men from every part of that city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. I read to that verse, and, you know, that's just uncomfortable to read, isn't it? I mean, that's not the kind of thing you want to talk about. But what we see here, there's no shame. There's no shame. There's no sense of right and wrong. They don't even realize how far off they've fallen. I think it was Billy Graham who said, if God doesn't judge America soon, he'll have to apologize to Solomon Gomorrah for his inconsistency. But here's an observation. The people of of Sodom were not destroyed because of their greed or their pride or their arrogance 
or even their sexual perversion and immorality. They were destroyed because they scoffed at God's warnings. They were told. They were warned. And they mocked spiritual truth. Lot went to the city to warn them, but they, they, they wouldn't listen. If they had just repented, we know this of God, that God would have gladly forgiven them. That's what he wanted to do. His grace is that great. But the Bible says that when Lot went to them, they mocked him. They'd lost all sense of right and wrong, and they laughed at him. But Lot didn't give up hope. He knew that God would make a way, at least for him and his family, so he played with his wife, his two daughters, and they headed for the mountains. The rest of the city, as we know from Scripture, were eating and drinking, buying, selling as normal, like nothing's going to happen. And then that catastrophe came. In the last decade, archaeologists have uncovered what they believe to be Solomon and Gomorrah. It's a city that's covered with ash, and what they have found... They discovered that the fires in the building started on the roofs. And they found little pockets, little balls of sulfur, evidently, that came from some kind of explosion. The asphalt pits were nearby. There was an earthquake fault right there in that very location. And what we know from Scripture, they were trapped, and they were all destroyed. Many in the world today ridicule the Bible. They scoff at Christians. We are the joke. And it seems more and more prevalent. Everything seems so good. We keep spinning. We're still making it. But our hope remains constant regardless of our situation, regardless of the circumstances. I read about a seasick passenger who was leaning over the rail, and he was just turning all shades of green, just hoping it would all go away. And one of the employees came up to him to try to say an encouraging word, said, Sir, don't worry. Nobody's ever died of seasickness. And the man replied very nauseated. He said, don't say that. The hope of dying is the only thing I'm living for. You know, the sins of the world can just make us sick, to make us nauseated. We just read in the news and we think, what more can happen? But it's the hope of being with Jesus that keeps us alive and keeps us going. Well, here's the fourth principle. Christian hope eagerly awaits Christ's return. I mentioned earlier that we shouldn't become consumed with it, but at the same time, we should eagerly await for his return. In fact, he talks about this. Look in verse 30 and following. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who was on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now, this... This is a difficult passage, and it was so easy to say, well, let's just kind of skip over that one. And I wonder, what is he saying here? Because you compare this back to Jesus' word in Matthew chapter 24. It's very similar words. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, don't go back into your house. Don't delay. Get out of there because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed quickly. You flee. That was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. But this context is talking about the second coming. When the Son of Man is revealed, don't go back into your house. Maybe he's saying, don't think you've got time to get your life in order. You be ready any day for his coming. Some believe this suggests that when when Christ comes, and maybe you've read this before, that that believers are going to have a choice. Either you can go with the Lord or or you can stay, but it's hard for me to, to grasp that from Scripture. But just imagine hearing the the sound of the trumpet. 
the voice of the archangel, and you look up from your porch and you see Jesus coming, and you have a choice. Let's just say you're all by yourself. Are you going to look for somebody, maybe go back in, somebody in your family, or, or, or call somebody up and say, hey, are you going? That's not the way to be at all. You go, don't delay. Remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife and his daughters were fleeing. We remember the story. Remember it well. Lot's wife turned back and turned into a pillar of salt. That's what the Bible says. We don't know exactly what that was like. One boy in Sunday school said, well, that's nothing. My mother was driving, and she looked back, and she turned into a telephone pole. But we know what's going on here, don't we? We don't understand the pillar of salt, maybe exactly what that meant. But there was something, there was something in Sodom that had her attention. Was it family? Was it good friends? Was it somebody that she'd been working on, teaching, trying to convince them to believe in God? Was it that she loved Sodom more than God? What was it that caused her to look back? She lingered. I think the message is Jesus saying, when Jesus comes back, you don't linger. You don't look back. You go. Don't be so in love with this world that you wouldn't just instantly jump the moment he appears. Look in verse 34. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in bed. will be in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. I was reading. One man said he knows a guy who ever since he and his wife read that verse, they've been sleeping in separate beds so they'd both get taken. Yeah, look in verse 35. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, the other left. I think what he's saying there, just because you have a close association with somebody, that doesn't get you in. That doesn't save your soul. You're not saved in, 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 as a group. It's an individual faith. It's your personal relationship with the Lord. And there's a lot of speculation about how all this is going to transpire. What I've learned is even those who seem to be so confident about the rapture, even they don't agree about how it's all going to play out. But what we do know, and where I take my stand, is what the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write. Look at Second Peter 3, verses 10 and following. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. The day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Now you may be saying, I thought this message is about hope. This is kind of dark. I mean, this is kind of dim and grim. But think about this. You ever go into a jewelry store, and if you're looking at a diamond, that they'll have it against the black backdrop of maybe black velvet? Because it looks so good. A light shines brightness, brightest in the darkness. It's hopeful news that we need to remember. See, the truth is the world is going to be destroyed one day. And our hope, our hope, what we live for, is just as Noah escaped by the ark, just as Lot escaped the destruction of Sodom, of Sodom, Christians will also escape the chaos that follows. Look at 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope, set your hope 
fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Set your hope on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. It is coming. He is coming. It's not something to dread. It's something to look forward to. We don't know when it's going to happen, but you be vigilant and you be ready. I read that during the end of World War II, there was a Scottish chaplain and a Professor McDonald that were taken captive by the Germans. They were shot down behind enemy lines. So they were put in the, in the, they were put in the POW camp there in Germany. And for some reason, the Germans divided the camp, the prisoners, into two sections. There was an American section and the British section. And it was divided by a wire fence. McDonald was put into the Americans. And the Scottish chaplain was put with the British. But the two, because they had become friends, they would meet every day and, and talk over the wire fence and just kind of share the news. But the news they shared the most was because on the American side, the Germans didn't know this, they had a small radio, kind of a makeshift, but they would get the news of what was happening in the outside world. And they would listen to that. That news was more important to them than food. And so every day... The Scottish chaplain would grab that, uh, uh, get the news, and go and share with his friend. One day they learned that the German high commander had surrendered. The war was over. MacDonald could not wait to run to the fence and to tell his friend. And he told his friend, and then he watched his friend go into the barracks of all the British, and it was just a matter of seconds, and then you heard this loud cheer. And all these prisoners of war were cheering and shouting and singing and dancing because they had been set free. Now it was three days later before the Germans finally heard the news of the war. They fled into darkness at night, leaving the gates open. The next morning, the British and the American POWs walked out as free men. Yet, three days earlier, they had been set free. And that changed everything. They knew the outcome. Christ's kingdom, Christ's kingdom has come, but not fully. He's coming back. It is going to be an amazing day. We know the outcome of the battle. Jesus won the victory on the cross. And we look forward to that day. Why? Because as the verse says, the grace that has been given you, you don't fear it, you don't dread it, you anticipate it. That's what Jesus said to do. And our lives are transformed by that hope. And even now, while we wait, we can live a life that is full Listen to Hebrews 10, 33. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Folks, that is good news. And that is our hope. We want to sing a song to encourage you to accept that kind of hope, real hope, not just in this life, but for the life to come. If you've never had your sins washed away in baptism, we have the water ready always to hear your confession, to help you as you repent, to know what that means, to continue to to become a disciple, to learn more and more. Or if we can just pray for you, one of our elders will be down front. Let's stand and sing this song together.